This evening, our scripture reading is going to be taken out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33. In the last four verses of that chapter, we're going to be reading verses 26 through 29. So, Deuteronomy chapter 33, 26 through 29. <clears throat> Starting in verse 26. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrusts out the enemy before you and says, destroy. So Israel lived safely. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Shall we pray? Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do once again come unto you in the evening hour of this day. Father, sitting before your throne, uh, waiting to hear your words preached. Father, we just pray that you would bless Ben and that you would give him clarity of mind and speech in this hour, that you would give him the words to speak to us and that we would have ears to hear, that we would understand and hearts that rejoice in, in the fullness that you only provide. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Title of the message this evening, <clears throat> Our God from Beginning to End. So historically, if we look back, if anybody has ever heard of or read about in history about Princeton Theological Seminary during the 19th and 20th centuries. Princeton had some of the best theologians in the world, specifically within the Reformed tradition. And of those theologians is a guy named Charles Hodge. And Charles Hodge was a teacher at, West, at um, Princeton for over 50 years. And as he celebrated his 50th anniversary, he had a couple years left in him, but it became pretty apparent at that time that it was time to step down, that his time had come to an end. Looking back over his 50-year career, Hodge was able to think of a lot of different things. The relationships that he built at Princeton, the people that he trained for ministry, the theological battles won and lost. He was able to witness the Civil War and the abolishment of slavery. So his 50-year career, he was able, able to stand back and he was able to see God's handiwork over all of Princeton when he was there for that 50 years. And not only that he could look back, but he could also look forward to the future knowing that they had a solid foundation as they went into the 20th century. So this is where we're seeing our context here in Deuteronomy chapter 33 this morning. Just before he's about to die, Moses, like Charles Hodge, He's giving a farewell address to the 12 tribes of Israel. His desire is for the people to confidently enter into the promised land. He already has his successor picked out. It's Joshua. And we see in the next chapter that Joshua is full of wisdom and spirit, ready to take Moses' place 
as he enters into the promised land. So what we're seeing Moses at this time is he stands at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, and he's looking back. And like Charles Hodge, he can look back and he can see how God providentially was over every aspect of his life. Now, if we think of Moses, we go back all the way to the beginning when he was rescued from the Egyptian king as a baby, as babies were being put to death at that time. How he was able to escape after killing the Egyptian and to go to the backside of the desert. How the Lord called him to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt and the wilderness wanderings that took place for 40 years. So he's able to think about all of these things and he's able to reminisce and go over the good times, the bad times, kind of stand back and see the picture as a whole. We can do this with our lives as well. We can think about all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our strife, all of our complaining, and we can look at how Israel went through the wilderness. Our lives can somehow at times parallel what Israel experienced. Every time we think in our lives that the Lord has abandoned us, Every time in our lives where we think we have to take matters into our own hands because the Lord isn't here with me at this moment. What we fail to realize, and we're going to take a look at this evening, is God is in complete control of every detail of our lives from start to finish. We can see God's faithfulness and the everyday grace that he gives us, even though at times we neglect or we fail to see it. So this evening we're going to take a look at God's eternal protection. And in Deuteronomy 33, verse 26 states, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Now these phrases, rides through the heavens and through the skies, what we're seeing here is God's overall faithfulness, God's overall protection over Israel during this time. He oversees everything. There's not one detail that he misses. In verse 27, it refers to the Lord as the eternal God. So what does it mean to be eternal? Well, we are not eternal. We're finite. We're limited. Meaning we have a beginning and we have an end. We exist inside of time. God does not. He is eternal, meaning he is outside of time altogether. Isaiah 57, 15 states that God inhabits eternity. How we can comprehend that with our finite minds, I don't know. We can't. We know it's a true statement, but he inhabits eternity. There is no point in history where God is not, and there is no point in the future where God is not. So what we're seeing here is from God's perspective, there is no past, there is no present, there is no future. He simply is. And we can never lose focus of that fact. Now the problem comes in. When we fail to recognize this, when we fail to recognize God's purpose and God's protection over every aspect of our lives, sometimes we can become so introspective. We can be looking at in ourselves, we can get so close to our problems that we fail to see everything else that's going on around us. So what we see Moses doing here at the end is he's able to step back and see all of Israel as a whole as he's wishing them farewell the same thing we should be doing at times when we have our problems and our present circumstances so much in focus that we're losing sight of what God has done. Times we can think that God's not involved, that he's stepped away, 
that he's abandoned us or that we're just floating through life and we're directionless. We have no idea why we're here. We have no idea where we're going. We're just floating. All of these things are false types of thinking. We might compromise here and start to think, well, we have to make our own luck. We have to put our own foot down. We have to make our own plans since God isn't here. So to sum it up, the sinfulness in our thinking is that we live as though the Lord is not being faithful to what he has promised. So we see in the book of Exodus, how many times do we see the children of Israel failing to recognize God's purpose and God's provision? How many times were they angry when they should have been thankful? How many times did they fear when they should have been brave? How many times did they doubt when they should have believed? How many times did they question God? Question his love. Question his motive. Question his purpose, his ways. Everything that the Lord had sworn to give them, yet they still turned around and doubted. Problem is, is we might develop this type of thinking in our lives as well. There is no point in our lives, and we cannot fail to miss this, where God is not in complete control. So breaking this down, we're going to look at four different aspects of it this evening, starting with the teenage years. Now, the first five years of our life, we have little recollection, if we're lucky, not much. All of a sudden, we're five years old, and our memory starts to work. We fail to have any concept of how God provided for those first five years where we can't provide for ourselves, but he does because we're all here this morning or this evening. He provides for us. There comes a point in our teenage years where we develop this ability to question, to reflect, to think. We begin to rebel a little bit. Because the effects that sin have on our life, we start to ask, and these are good questions, but they can be asked in a faithless, sinful manner in the sense of, why was I born? Why was I born here? Or why was I born into this situation? Or what is the purpose, what is the point of life at all? And in today's culture, right now, it's postmodern. There is no meta-narrative. And what I mean by meta-narrative is there is no overall story where we're teaching our youth today in general in our secular institutions where we fit in. There is no flow of history there is no purpose of history. What people believed in the past was just their view. There's no structure to anything. So there's a, a, a meaninglessness, a hopelessness that a lot of teenagers are experiencing today because there is no overall historic context of where they fit in. If everything is just here because of random acts that have just happened to evolve the way they are, there is no purpose in anything which is why it's so crucial and it's so important that we're catechizing our children into the Christian worldview. Because what ends up happening is they start to question, what's the origin? Where did I come from? What's my identity? Who am I? Meaning and morality, what, where do we derive meaning? And where am I going when I die? All these questions start to pile up within the mind of a teenager. And we wonder why we're seeing an increase of suicides in our culture. Now looking back to Israel, we can see a parallel here, where Israel, when they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, with taskmasters afflicting them, they begin to wonder this as well. Why are we slaves to the Egyptians? God could have placed us anywhere but here, but why here? What's the point of this? And what Israel began to do is to lose their focus on the overall picture, 
Because if we go back to Genesis 15, 13, it says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So Israel, when they were in Egypt, weren't just floating through. They just didn't, didn't happen to end up there. This is all part of God's overall plan. What happened after this? The Lord delivered a certain baby from the hand of the Egyptian king, raised him up to be a ruler to deliver the children of Israel out. Each step of the way, each second that went on, God had a plan and God had a purpose. He chose to deliver the children of Israel out in this method. So we ask the question, why was Moses born? Why were the children of Israel born? What is the purpose of all of this? The purpose is simply to serve the Lord, to glorify him, and to find out what his plan is and to enter into his plan. To serve, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt was Moses' plan. That's what God had ordained for Moses. We looked at this this morning in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, with the prophet Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So what we're seeing here is even in the womb, we're not outside of God's protection. We're not outside of God's plan. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So we're seeing this with Jeremiah. There is purpose. There is provision. And the same thing is true for each one of us as well. There is purpose and there is provision. So why was Jeremiah born? To glorify God and serve his purposes. Why are you and I born? For the exact same purpose. To glorify God and to serve his overall purpose. So now look at this verse here. I'll read this for you. Acts 17, 26 says this. God has made out of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the time before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So we are here at this moment, this evening, right now, in God's plan for a reason, to be part of his overall plan. Every aspect of our lives, whether it's ethnically, our gender, our culture, our family, everything is ordained by the hand of the Lord. Our purpose is to take what God has given, it, given us, give it back to him out of service and out of reverence, and to glorify him. So now from the teenage years, we go to the working years. At times, we fail to recognize God's purpose in providing for our families. Either we go through times of layoff, which creates severe anxiety at times, times of unemployment, or times of losing our job, where we start to really, really cling to the Lord at those times because our livelihood has been taken from us. Or when our jobs become redundant, mundane, we can begin to think, there has to be more. The grass has to be greener somewhere else. Is this what I am meant to do for the rest of my life? Same old thing, day in, day out. Now, have we heard this before in the, wandering, the um, wandering, uh, wilderness wanderings of Israel? And we have. They complained. What over? The manna. Same food. Day in, day out. The Lord had been faithful to provide them what they needed, but they lost their focus, the overall picture. Rather than seeing something as a blessing, they started to see God's blessing for their life as a curse or as something to loathe or as something that's getting redundant or that's something that's not satisfying my appetite. They quickly forget about how they were delivered out of their slavery in Egypt 
And now they begin to focus on this manna that they're eating, and they begin to become discontent and complain. What were they saying? Numbers 11 records it. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So they're looking back at Egypt as if those were the glory days, and they're looking at their situation right now as if it's horrendous. They got everything mixed up. Sin has filled their heart. They are not being content with what the Lord has provided. And in verse 10 of Numbers 11, it says, In the anger of the Lord, it says in the ESV, blazed hotly. So when the Lord hears our grumbling, when he hears our complaining, that's not pleasant to him. He doesn't enjoy, he enjoys inhabiting our praises, but not our grumbling. And there's at times where this can start to invade our thinking when we start to think about our job, not being content with what the Lord has provided for us. And interestingly, about nine years ago now, I think it was, she was 30 at the time, a daughter of a Fortune 100 company had committed suicide. And I don't know why, when I heard this, it struck me in such a way. I mean, mean, the parents owned this Fortune 100 company. They were multi-billionaires. She was 30. The average person would step back and think, she's set for life. She has absolutely everything at her fingertips. What would be the point of suicide? And I think this goes to show us that when we start to fill our hearts with our idols, or if we start to look at our present material circumstances and try to find satisfaction out of them, turning them into an idol, that is where we become discontent and become bitter to the Lord. In our thinking, we may see others around us prospering. We think we deserve better that God is not using me to my full potential. We must never forget that it is the Lord who's sovereign over every aspect of our lives, and we are here in this moment right now because it's done by the hand of the Lord. What he has given us at this moment is what we are to give glory to him for. Now, it doesn't matter what the job is. A lot of times in our thinking, we think we can do better, we can be better. We have this social scale in our mind, this somehow imaginary ladder, that if we're doing this type of job, it's lower than if we're doing this type of job. And in reality, what the Lord is looking for is somebody who is faithful to what he has ordained them to be doing. It's not about the material wealth or the possession, but it's about our faithfulness, our gratitude, our love for what the Lord has done for us and what he has provided us with. So we get confused. We start to substitute prestige for being faithful and grateful. We substitute where the Lord is supposed to be in our hearts, and we want to fill that with our material possessions and our, art, and our outward things. We occupy the place in our heart where the Lord is supposed to be, and this is where we fall into grave sin. Now switching from the working years, going to the middle years, entering into the middle years of our life. We may take a look back And we might realize or come to the impression that we haven't done what we had set out to do. Not everything has gone according to plan. We think of unfinished goals. We think of unfulfilled desires, ambitions, things that in our teenage years and in our 20s as we sat back and thought about how our life should go, when we get to those middle years, we realized it went completely 180 from what we had set out to do. 
We look back at our friends in high school, or we look at our relatives who are about the same age who are successful, and they're succeeding more than we are. And we start to think, I've failed. We start to think, I'm not as successful as so-and-so. I'm not going to achieve all of the goals, all of the plans, everything that I thought I was going to be able to do in my younger years. So what we see doing here, what we're doing, we lose our focus on where the Lord has placed us and what the Lord has called us to do. So the question is, where does the Bible use our material possessions as a standard for measuring success? Do we see that anywhere in Scripture? Are we pulling that Scripture out of the text? The answer is no, we're not. So then where do we get this competitive nature from? What is the source of this? It's from our own lusts, our own passions, and our desire to be noticed. Same theme through each one of these stages in life. We're not content with what the Lord has given us. Interestingly, in Numbers chapter 12, we see a mini uprising. Moses' sister Miriam and Moses' brother Aaron are frustrated because God has appointed Moses as the leader and because God is speaking directly through Moses Miriam and Aaron become jealous over Moses, and they try to scheme, they try to plan a way to get him out of that position so they can take over. Now, sadly, what we're seeing here is sister against brother, brother against brother, all within the camp of the Lord. So if we think it can't happen here at church, we're fooling ourselves. This type of envy, this type of bitterness that we see is corrosive. And this is sad because it's family against family within the dwelling place of the Lord. Now, Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19, we're not going to read them, but that's the reference of what I'm going to be pulling this from. Paul talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit strengthens our inner being. He talks about Christ who dwells in our hearts and being rooted and grounded in this love. So we're seeing a sanctified person. So now what we think we're going to see next is a list of things that Paul tells us to do. A list of works. Something we can get our hands on. What does Paul say next? Two things. First, to know the love of Christ and to be filled with the fullness of God. And number two is to share this with the saints. So what, we, what are we seeing here? When we're being sanctified and when the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts and we're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, what are we to do with that? It's to be based on relationship. Number one, with the Lord. And number two, with our fellow saints and brothers. Paul says nothing about works. Paul says nothing about accomplishments. What Paul is saying here is the blessings the Lord gives are intended to be for relationships and not for material possessions not for building up our resume, not for getting seven or eight plaques on our wall and sitting and thinking that we are somebody now because we have accomplished something in this world. Rather, it's the exact opposite. The Lord does this with us to build our relationship with him and then at the same time to fellowship with the other saints. So simply speaking, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 3 is human life is about relationships and relationships define human life, not how high we've gotten on the corporate ladder. First, our relationship with the Lord, 
Second, with our wives or our husbands or our children or our friends or our fellow believers in Christ. It's all about relationships. Jealousy and envy can rob us of our true calling that the Lord has called us into in life. At times, it's sad enough that when envy and jealousy enter in our hearts, we end up fighting with the people that we're closest to. We end up developing these mini type of grudges that, well, I'm not going to talk to this person. Well, I'm not going to talk to them until they talk to me. And we go on for decades not talking to each other. This is exactly the opposite of what the Lord has called us to do. So looking over the fence at the neighbor's yard, seeing all of his possessions and everything that he has accomplished can be very frustrating and create a lot of anxiety in our lives. We are never okay. No matter what we achieve in this life, if we're not living properly according to the relationships that the Lord has called us to develop. Lastly, looking at the golden years. The time to reflect. And this is where we're seeing Moses in our text this evening. Like Moses in this passage, we look back on life. We see the trials. We see the successes. We see the failures. We see the regrets. What do you think the children of Israel are saying as they looked back when they looking back on the time that they were delivering from Egypt. So what we're seeing here, Israel delivered from Egypt. They're about to enter into the promised land. And looking back on that 40-year journey, what do you think entered their mind? I'm thinking it would have been something like this. We should have prayed more. We should have visited each other more. We should have spent more time together. We should have worried less. We should have trusted in the Lord's provision. We should have told our loved ones that we love him, love them even more. We should have spent more time in our relationships. Looking back, they could not find one time where the Lord was not faithful to them. And in the same thing, in the same life, we can do the same thing. There's not one point in our life where the Lord has not been fully, 100% present in that moment with us. He has never abandoned us. His promises do not fail. So in the time where we get so close that all we can see is that object in front of us and we lose focus on everything else that's going on beside us are the times where we need to repent and get reestablished with the Lord. So what we're seeing here is what Solomon sums up in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, outside of the Lord, everything else in life is vanity. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, he went to and fro looking for all the wisdom and all the earth and saw everything that he saw But outside of the Lord, all of these things just come and go. They come, they go. The only traction that we get in life, the only substance is to be in the will of the Lord. Outside of that, everything else is in vain. So in conclusion, the problem comes when we fail to recognize our true source of happiness. So here's a question we can ponder. Before the foundation of the world, before God created anything, what was taking place? So before God created the heavens and the earth, time, space, matter, everything that we see, before any of this existed, what was going on? And the answer to that is perfect fellowship, a perfect relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Since there was perfect harmony between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit before creation, where do you suppose we find perfect fellowship in the creation. Would it change? The answer is no. Because God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in perfect fellowship before, 
just because this world is created, now we just don't abandon God and go grab everything that's out in the world. It's the same principle. The only source of true happiness, the only source of true fulfillment is going to be in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing in this world will satisfy. First, our relationship with the Lord, and then secondly, the relationship with other believers. What happened to Peter when the Lord called him out of the boat? He was able to walk on the water. What happened when Peter took his eyes off of the Lord? He began to sink. Same principle applies. When we take our eyes off the Lord, when we take our eyes, our focus off of his will, his plan, his provision, and we start to look inward or we start to look outward at the material possessions, the same thing starts to happen in life. We sink. Maybe it might not be in water, but it might be in depression. It might be in anxiety. It might be in a midlife crisis. It might be out of jealousy, anger, envy. But the key of it is, is that we lose focus on the Lord and his provision over our lives. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for everything that you've given us. Lord, let us not lose sight of your provision and your purpose. Lord, no matter what our present circumstances might be dealing to us, Lord, you are right there in the midst, working with us on a moment-by-moment basis. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit that indwells our hearts, trains our hearts, trains our minds to rely upon you. And like Paul, Lord, when he was in jail, he was able to sing out, pray, sing out hymns and praises and songs to you. The same, Lord, we pray for each one of us, that our relationship, Lord, with you strengthens. And through our strength and relationship, Lord, we bring that with other believers, other Christians, other like-minded individuals. And from that, we bring that to the workplace on a weekly basis to show, Lord, the reality of who you are, your transforming power, and the love that you have to give to anybody who will come to him. We thank you for all of these things. Lift this up, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.